Well, along with a number of you, I have been listening to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. If you're not familiar with that, it's, um, it's a story of um, Mars Hill Church in Seattle, started in the spring of 1996 by uh, Mark Driscoll and, and, and others. By 2013, Mars Hill was a church that had 15 campuses around the United States, around the world, 13,000 in attendance at, at, these church, at these campuses. Uh, being in the role that I'm in, you know, I, I, I kind of am aware of those things. And uh, I watch with, you know, uh, great, um, uh, just, I, I, I was able, I watched this rise of Mars Hill and um, uh, Mark Driscoll's influence on evangelicalism uh, over the years. Um, if you stay, if you just stay attuned to Christianity, quite frankly, in America, in, in a sense, it would it, have been hard to miss uh, the meteoric rise of um, Mars Hill. By January 2015, it had dissolved 13 of those campuses and soon after dissolved. Today, it, it no longer exists. Uh, one of the things I so appreciate about uh, the, the podcast, Mike Cosper is the host, producer, um, is, is that while the events that uh, led to Mars Hill's uh, decline, demise, quite frankly, are presented with, I mean, it's very uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable candor, um, but he doesn't throw Mars Hill under the bus, nor, the, nor, nor Mark Driscoll, nor the leadership, um, but he offers this story, and it's, 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 it's quite a story. He offers it as a cautionary tale. And really, uh, you know, it's, his, his exhortation throughout is, uh, do not look down your nose, look in the mirror at what happened here. Like any local church, you all, Fellowship Bible Church, we have been through the ringer in ups and downs and crises and challenges. Some, some from without, some from within, you know, some, some are of our own self-inflicted wounds. In God's great kindness and mercy, I, and I mean this, I'm, I'm glad we're here. I'm glad we just get to do what we're doing right now. I'm glad we get to give our lives away together. We are, we are, we are broken people helping others find wholehearted life in Jesus. But we're always just a hair's breadth away from not being here. I'm, I'm not being an alarmist by any means. That's a fact. Look, the, the kingdom of God's not at threat. God's purposes and plans, look, he's not, he doesn't, it's not dependent on Fellowship Bible Church. But us as a local expression of his body, as a community of faith, listen, it's, it, it could unravel in a moment. Um, and while it would seem sudden, and while it does seem sudden, even with these, this story and others, the, the truth is that we, under, we come to understand is that it, 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 it's, it's sudden only in this way, that for years there is brewing beneath the waterline uh, these issues that suddenly uh, bring things down. It's like, it's like those things are there, but can I speak as, as one of your pastors? Those things are there, but what, we, but what we tend to look at is money, people, and buildings. And it's like, if that stuff's okay, it's kind of like this stuff goes. I am guilty of that. 
sobering reality is that the root cause is it's not out there. So this is what I want to talk to us this morning. It's like a family meeting if you're a member at fellowship. Um, the, the root cause is it's always in here. It's in the room. You know why? Because I'm in the room. Because you're in the room. When Paul writes to the church at Philippi, there's, there's some serious trouble brewing, quite frankly. If you read the whole, which I encourage you to do, by the way, it takes 12 minutes. So sometime in between each week, just, 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 just take this up and just sit there. You're waiting in the doctor's office. Just read it. And, in the, and if you do that, then when we're teaching these sections, it's like, oh, I see it within the context of the whole. So I want to encourage you to do that. Well, if you look at the whole, he's, he, Paul is very clear about the problems that are there. And it's, it's not even implied. It's explicit, quite frankly, if you look for it. Chapter four, verse two, he tells Euodia and Syntyche, uh, change your names. Just kidding. No, he says, he tells you, I just said that because it's like, that's, who knows this? These are Greek names. But so he says, Yodia and Syntyche says, get along. Why? Why would he tell them to get along? Because they're, they're fighting. They're not getting along, right? Uh, he'll say in chapter two, verse 14, do all things without grumbling and disputing. I mean, did he just pick that out of thin air? No. That little church at Philippi that was grumbling and disputing in our text today, he'll say, do nothing out of selfish ambition and empty conceit. Why? Because there were those of Philippians that were doing stuff out of empty conceit and selfish ambition. He's not mentioning these things as potential threats to you. He's mentioning them as present realities that are there. In a word, Disunity is afoot at Philippi. Paul's deep concern is not what the world will do to the church at Philippi. He's not concerned about the government and what the government's gonna do to the church at Philippi. Not concerned about cultural forces. For our day, it's not a global pandemic. No, it's not that. He's concerned about what the church could do to herself. What a timely word for us. And when I say us, I'm not saying the church global. No, what a timely word for Fellowship Bible Church, this particular expression of the global church. Let's pay attention to our own stuff, not just global out there stuff. May we hear Paul's words today, you all and then act on them. Uh, a lot is at stake. And I'm gonna actually give us time. So just so you know, we'll end the service with an opportunity to, 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 to apply the text in a very appropriate way before we go out the doors. You know, it's like, let's, let's do some work in here, Holy Spirit, in our hearts. And I trust that he will. Now, Paul's exhortation this morning, Lindsay read it. If you're not there in your booklet or in your Bible, it's Philippians chapter two, verses one to four. It is one long Greek sentence. It's these four verses, but it's just this one, it's a run-on long sentence in the Greek. He, Paul's got so much to say. It's just like, he can't, get the, he can't get to the end of his thought. I will say, as we move through this, we will find that he points to one word in the end, one word. And that one word is kryptonite to disunity. 
In terms of the structure, I, I think the way we'll do this is see the whole. Now here's the, here's the, here's the, the paragraph really is what it is. It's, it's one long sentence beginning in, y'all in the Greek, there are no, there's no capitalization, indentation, no commas, no dashes, no, no anything. It's just words, you know, that run on. But it's, it's one thought. As we look at it here on the screen, I, I, maybe the best way to, to kind of catch this is I'll say it first, then I'll show it, is that it is an if-then statement. So it's, it's if this, then this, and then he adds, here's how. Are, you, are y'all with me? So if, then, how. Now, now the way we can see it, I think, immediately is to note, and I wouldn't see this, but in, in the Greek, there's just one command. Kind of look like he has to do this, do this. Well, there's one command in the Greek, complete my joy. That's it. One command in the Greek, complete my joy. It's an imperative, you know, that's, we use that term to say it is a command. It's in the active voice, active mood. Um, when, we, when we have that nailed down, we can then say, okay, so then if it's a if, then, here's how, I would, I would put the, the, the statement in this way. Let's start here, and this is A. If, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, if, then complete my joy. You with me? So we got A, we have B, and you know what? We have C. If, then, how? You with me? So now we got a little bit of, a little bit of structure we can work with. Um, let's, let's unpack it a bit. Let's start with the if statements. Um, when, in some of your Bibles, now we use the ESV when we're teaching, but the NIV and others will translate it, since there is. Now, now, so that's a big difference, isn't it? If there is versus since there is. The if here is a first class condition. It's not always true, but often a first-class condition tells us that it's a statement of reality, not a question of reality. So we, we go, oh, that, that could be a first-class condition that's a statement of reality. But we also have to go, okay, that's not enough of a reason to take it that way. You've got to look at the context. And what I would say is within the context of this verse, we know that Paul is speaking, number one, Rob talked about it last week, citizens of the gospel. So he's, he's talking to citizens of the gospel, those born again, those who are in Christ. He's gonna go on to describe these statements that describe a person who is in Christ. And there's enough here for us to say it is, it is right to see this if statement, not as if as in question, but since this is true, this is what he's saying. Because this is true, why does he write it that way? Well, because this letter is so personal. Um, Paul, to these Philippians, he is emoting, quite frankly. It's a plea. And he's using a rhetorical device to, to dialogue with them. Um, th- this sounds kind of corny, perhaps, but you know how sometimes salespeople will get you to start saying yes, Yes, you know, so they can get you to the yes, yes. Uh, it's not that per, here per se, but there's something of that in this way. 
If I were talking to my children and, 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 I, and I'm gonna tell them to do something, um, I perhaps, rather than just demanding it, I might say, y'all, if, if you grew up with a roof over your head and you had food on the table and you had clothes to wear and you have felt mom and dad's love, you see what just happened there? That now, now my kids are going, yes, yes, yes. You know, they're, in, they're engaged in the rhetoric. Now they're having to wrestle with everything dad said's true. <laughs> That's what Paul's doing here. Everything he says here, it's not if, uh-oh, it's not if, it is, y'all, this is the kind of stuff, Joe, that drives me crazy. <laughs> and, and it sits up here all the whole time and it's totally fine. And, and now suddenly, um, if is since. It's because this is true. This is really important. Because this is true. You remember Rob last week talking about this? Man, if you missed this, you need to watch this message. I always, Rob encourages you to watch me. I encourage you to watch Rob because they're all connect. But remember he talked about being and doing? Made, it, made a big point to say, look, oh my gosh, what Paul is saying in here is like live as citizens worthy of the kingdom. And Rob said, y'all, that's identity. That's what's happening here. So that we'll note here, this is in the Greek, an indicative is what we call it. It's an indicative. Well, what does that mean? It's, it's what Rob said last week. This is objective fact and reality. These things are true. It is, Rob said it this way. He said, this is your identity. In the New Testament, the pattern is indicative precedes imperative. Well, what does that mean? It means what Rob said. It means the Christian life is really our doing, simply catching up with our being. It's this, when, when the Bible commands us, when Paul commands us, he's not saying do this so that you will, you will, you will become this. No, it's, the command always comes after what you already are. He, he, so he reminds him, you're this. Express what you already are. In this sentence, when we look at what he says, he says, so if there, it's like this, it would be because, because there is encouragement in Christ, because there is comfort from love, because there is participation in the spirit and affection and sympathy, encouragement. You've, you've been encouraged. They, they, they have to own this. You've been encouraged by Christ in your struggle, which is the context for this. Uh, you've been comforted by the love of God, when, when you have been down, you, you've participated in the spirit. You know, in your spirit, the Holy Spirit has indwelt you and you've, connect, you've felt connected in the body of Jesus. You've, you've experienced its, it's tender, uh, uh, tender affection or affection and sympathy. It's, it's two words that mean one thought. And, and the one thought would be is, is you've experienced You've tasted tender mercy. That's a fact. Based upon the indicative, he gives 
the imperative. A, B, C. Complete my joy. Complete, fill up my joy. Bring, bring my joy to overflowing. We already know joy's present, so let's not miss this. It's not like, would you do something so I have joy? No. He begins the letter by, we know this contextually, and he begins the letter this way. You know, he's chained to a Roman guard for four years. Uh, he doesn't know if tomorrow means life or death. Okay, so he's here. But, but what has he already said? He said, you know, my circumstances have proved to advance the gospel. I rejoice in my circumstances. So joy's present. And then he looks forward to say, if I die tomorrow, I will rejoice. Are y'all with me? Joy is present. So what, so what does he mean then? Complete my joy. Well, there's more joy to be had. Well, how can there be more joy to be had? Joy is of God. How much joy do you think there is in the universe? It's, it's of God. There's no limit. <laughs> we, we, we experience joy, yes. But this is so interesting to me as I studied this this week. There's more to be had. There's always more to be had. Why? Because there's never, there's, joy never runs out in Christ and in God. Don't turn there, but in John 3, 29, John the Baptist's disciples come to him and they're, they're really upset. And they're like, oh my gosh, John, he's got more disciples than you now. He's baptizing more. It's like, he's more successful than you are. And what does John say? John the Baptist responds. He says, the one who has the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice Therefore, this joy of mine is now, same word, complete. This joy of mine is overflowing. Well, John, why is your joy overflowing? Because of the blessing on Jesus, who's the groom. Where joy is present, there's always room for more. I'll talk about this uh, when, we, when we talk about a pr key principle from the passage. I had this question when I read it. You know, you kind of read this and at least I do. I said, okay, so he's commanding them to complete his joy. That sounds self-serving. <laughs> Look, do this so I have more joy. <laughs> Is Paul being self-serving as he commands them to complete his joy? It's a question we'll answer, but we'll hold it until the end. Since, right, since this, since this is true, then complete my joy. How? There's the, there's the sentence as it breaks out. How? You'll notice he's, he's, he, he goes and he's got a list of at least seven things. It's kind of like you could tweak him and say six, five, three. Let's take seven things. Most commentators will say that, you know, he, he, it's, 
It's not designed to be like precisely this, precisely, it's, they overlap. He, he, he's, he's just pouring his heart out in how they're to complete his joy. Uh, he begins being of the, it, it, he'll use two different words here, being of the same mind here. Down here, he's gonna say, be of one mind, be of the same mind. It's, it's the idea that the mind, and he uses mind five times in this letter, it's not be of the same brain, be of the same thoughts simply. It is truly be of the same, if I could say it in our vernacular and it's biblical, be of the same heart. What do you mean? Be of the same mind, emotions, desires, choices, your whole heart be aligned, uh, be similarly disposed with the whole of who you are. I'm not just making this up. You know, I'm saying, I'm telling you, mind is not just think the same things. It's be disposed in the same way with your whole being, bring with, with emotions, desires, and all that you are. It is, some would say, and this is, I think it's okay. I don't know if it's exact, but you know, be of the same worldview, have the same predisposition of life and all it is. He says, have the same love. Uh, love here is agape. Be of the same love, i.e., what is agape love? It is an act of the will at great cost for the good of another. That's the love that we, we, we do to each other. Being in full accord, full accord, it's, um, it is one souled. How about that? That's such a beautiful way to say it. Be a, be a soulmate. You say, well, that's only for my wife. Well, no, that's the body. Be of one souled. Be that connected as a body. And then be of, he goes from be of the, he start, he's up here and be of the same mind. He gets down here and he says, be of one mind. And I'm gonna shoot this thing, Joe, totally be of one mind. And here, I want you to note this. Here it was saying, here it is be of one purpose. How about this? So be, 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 similarly disposed in your view of life in the world with your whole being. And look, all of you, all of you, here it is, one purpose. Be about that. Be about that. Well, I wanna be about this. No, be about that. It's be of one purpose. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition and conceit, by the way, you might just put 117 because he said in 117, you know, there are those around here who are sharing Christ out of selfish ambition. And I'm sure when they read that, they went, shame on them. And then Paul comes around in verse two, chapter two and says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition because some of you are, you know. Uh, it's, it's empty conceit is two Greek words. It's empty glory or, or conceit is empty glory. It is, it's to do something to make yourself look good but behind the look, there's nothing. There's nothing. It's vain glory. And then he says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I wanna talk about that word humility. Um, in that day, okay, in our day, humility, you know, I know there are exceptions to the rule, but humility is generally agreed. I think most of us agree it's a, it's a virtue. He's humble. She's humble. She has humility. 
please know in that day, it was not a virtue. It was anathema. So, so in their culture to, to, to be, to, to, to someone to say you're humble or you have humility, that it, was to, it, would, it would be to say you have the status and the place uh, of a slave. You, you, you are, there's the lowest class and then you're below that if that's how you're gonna be described. It was not a virtue. So interesting that this very word humility that Paul uses here, y'all, I didn't even try to write it out or pronounce it. It's like 12 letters long. It's interesting. It, it's two Greek words that Paul put together that, that didn't exist until Paul wrote it. They, they can't find places in ancient literature where this word existed outside. And then Paul writes it to the Philippians. It's two Greek words. The first one, it means um, lowly. And then he takes this Greek word that means to think. Lowly to think. Now again, you hear that and even we would go, Ugh. I'm telling you for them, it was like, you know, that you don't want to be that. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's not what Paul was getting at. It's not seeing yourself diminished or debased. It's not that, you all. In fact, humility would be to see yourself very accurately. Here's, here's the key we want to hold. It is to see yourself uh, in, in the presence of God, to, to see yourself as you would see yourself with God. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when you, when you, when you place yourself before God, two things happen and you gotta hold both. The first one would be this, when we say, I gotta see myself in light of God, then the first thing would go is, I'm not God. He's high and exalted in the most appropriate sense. Listen, I'm lowly. But the second thing you do see when you see yourself in relation to God in, is, is we recognize I am created in the image of God. And thus I am, I am of great worth and value, eternal worth and value. So you see where the lowly hits, huh? The image of God also brings the dignity and it's a both and in humility. So when, when we're holding these two truths, okay, when we see, we go, humility is to see myself in light of God, then when I'm with people, when, when I'm with you or you're with me, then, then I, see, I see myself rightly. I don't, I don't try and push you down so I can get above you. I, I don't do that. In fact, I walk side by side with you and as Paul reminded us two weeks ago, and he tells us here again in this passage, I actually walk with you and, and, and my aim, you know what I'm thinking about when I'm with you? How can I lift you up? How can I lift you up? It, it doesn't put me down. No, how can, I, how can I better you, so to speak? That would be to walk in humility. Uh, Marcus uh, Bachmuel wrote a definition that I have here and you know, I found this, it's so interesting, y'all, when you're studying and you read commentaries and books and every once in a while you come across something that's like, I think everybody read that because everybody has it. And it was just so good. And I want to offer this to you. 
He writes this of humility, the biblical view, which is the one we're always most concerned with, right? The biblical view of humility is precisely not feigned or groveling, nor a sanctimonious or pathetic lack of self-esteem. See, so, so it's not, it's not, not at all. It is rather a mark, he says, of moral strength and integrity. Here's the most important part I want you to hang on to. It involves an unadorned acknowledgement of one's own creaturely inadequacies. I like that way better than me saying, it's how you see yourself with God. <laughs> this is really a good way because it's, it's, it's an unadorned acknowledgement of one's own creatureliness, inadequacies, and entrusting one's fortunes to God rather to one's own abilities or resources. You see, that's why I said, when you walk in humility with others, you, you're, you're constantly trying to move them up because it doesn't move you down the ladder. Why? Because you trust wherever you land, that's in God's hands. But God has called me to lift this one whom I walk with, whom I engage with as I walk in humility. He ends with this last one. Don't look to your own interests but also the interests of others. Y'all, I think this is simply, two weeks ago, we talked about this, where Paul says, let me tell you why I'm gonna stay on the planet. Because I wanna help you in your progress of joy in the faith. I think this is what he's saying. You know, to look out for another's interest is to look out for their progress and joy in the faith. I'm gonna give you one takeaway, and then we're gonna apply the text. Here's the takeaway, and I mentioned it earlier. There is a fullness to joy that we often forfeit. This passage had me asking myself this question. How much joy do I leave on the table every day? I think a lot. There's a sense to which, and this is, I, I, this is me standing up here to say, y'all, I've been wrong about some things I've said, and I'm gonna say something I've been wrong about because I think this is more accurate. There's a sense to which circumstances do have an effect on biblical joy. Now, I've said many times, you know, I've said, look, biblical joy is, is about joy in God, and you know, it doesn't have anything to do with your circumstances. I stand corrected. Because Paul here has actually tied the completion of his joy to their obedience. What? Yes. Now again, I've already said this. It's not that whether they obey or disobey, his joy goes away. He's already said, I have joy. But the fullness of joy is actually tied to others. And, and you know, everything in me wants to go, no way. My joy is about me. I control the joy. You know what I'm saying? No, Paul says no. In the body of Christ, we can actually be a governor to the joy in another person's life. This goes so against, y'all, our Western, you know, I'm American, half Japanese, American, but this Western mindset of, it's the individual, What's right for the individual? What's right for me? We just, I mean, it's just in our blood. But it wasn't in the blood of, the, of an Eastern culture. 
And it's not in the blood of those who are in Christ, truly. Because for, 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 for them, and when I say them, for the early church, for Philippi, they, they understood that their personal choices have a massive impact on the communal life of the people, of the body. Does this make sense? I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's convicting. It's true. I may be a governor on your joy. The truth of the matter is, biblically, my joy, the fullness of my joy, y'all, it depends on y'all. It, it does. And the fullness of your joy, quite frankly, depends on me at some level. Does this make sense? I don't wanna overstate it, but I don't wanna understate it. Joy is in, endless, is in endless supply. So yes, we can, circumstances change, they go bad, they go good. Like we can live with joy. But there's more that we forfeit. When we're not walking who we already are, when we're not being who we already are in Christ. Now, I asked the question earlier, is Paul selfish to call the Philippians to command them to complete his joy? I think you know the answer's no, but why would the answer be no? Because his command for them to be more of who they already are is his command for them to experience joy. It's not just like, hey, do this so I'll have joy. No, Paul is saying, do this because it's who you are and it's your path to joy. Does this make sense? It is, um, um, it, it, it says, this is a parental thought, but when we as parents invite our kids, that's too weak. When we tell our kids you know, to do something, Don't we want it for their joy? Don't we, I mean, have you ever told your kid to do something that wasn't for their good? Do you see what I'm saying? So Paul's command here is for, it's for their good. And yes, it will complete his joy. Even as when you as a parent see your child, right? Obedient, whatever, making wise choices. What happens in you? Like their joy is there and then yours goes, whoa, it's completed. It is no different in the church, in our church. How about an application? Well, I'm gonna step way out of my comfort zone right now. Um, like where I am right now, like trying to find a blank slide up here. Um, which it can't, I don't know where it went, Joe, but let me, let me illustrate it for you like this. Um, I'm gonna talk about neuroscience. I know nothing about neuroscience, but I'm gonna offer this because I think it'll help us just simplify things in application. Y'all, there is, um, for me to, to pick up this pen and write, oh, there it is, Joe put it up there. For me to pick up this pen and write, um, 
there is in our body biologically these things called synapses. What's a synapse? Well, it's, it's like I have a thought here. Well, there's, there's, this, there's these connections that have to go from here all the way down here for me to pick this up and write. And it, it just happens instantly. But, you know, you break it down and it's got to go all the way through. And so in God's design, the way we're made, I'm going to draw this and Like, like, like right there, I about said a cuss word, but, but the synapse broke down and I didn't say it. I didn't say it. So there are these things called synapses. And by the way, they do look like this. Imagine that, that, that there's, there's these two things that look like the end of a bone, okay? It looks like that. But there's a gap there. And so my mind says, pick up the thing and draw and it goes, doo, 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 doo. But, but all the way through here, there's these, these places where there's these synapses. And that space right there is called a synaptic, synaptic gap. And, and you know, you scratch your head and say, why didn't he just make one long continuous line like a telegraph? I don't know. There's these synapses. And so the, the intent has to go down, but the intent has to make a jump. It has to go from here to here. To, does this make sense? To get all the way down. I know Laura's going, yes, I'm a nurse, Lloyd. I know these things, but you can come over and teach it. So, you know, I, I kind of got familiar with this even when I was struggling with depression, which I have, and, and your, your brain works a certain way, y'all. There's these synapses in your brain, and when the chemicals are not there, then, then the electrical charge doesn't jump, and you, you don't function well, you know? And it's either chemical or electrical that has to be in this gap, so it goes boom, and it crosses over, boom, 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 boom all the way down my arm, and I write. So there is this intent, Paul. Complete my joy. And then, and then there's their behavior and they live in a certain way, okay? Complete my joy and love one another. Da, 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 live this way. Consider others more important than yourself. There's a gap. It's not a chemical gap. It's not an electrical gap. There's a word that goes in that gap. Humility. Yeah, yeah, that, that living with one another and completing Paul's joy in this way, if there's a lack of humility, then the intent goes here, it doesn't get all the way out. Does that make sense? And so I want us to think in that way, that within our engagements with one another, how we treat one another. A lack of humility. And we don't treat each other well. We don't believe the best. We're not compassionate. There's no tender affection. There's no kindness. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no understanding. There's no love. Humility. I'm telling you, now let's get out of the neuroscience and get into the spiritual realm. I'm inviting us, Paul is, in our invitation to joy, to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves. Note what Paul says in 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble, or Peter says, humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. So here's our application. I'm gonna invite you to 
talk to God, listen to the Spirit. I'm gonna have you stand in a moment and, and it's just the application is for you to pray. And I'm gonna ask you to pray where you are. You can stand and pray. You can sit down and pray. You can kneel. There are some little cushions we put up here that are terribly uncomfortable, but that'll keep you alert in prayer. You know, I don't expect everyone to come down and pray, but y'all, some, some, some of you may just wanna go, I just wanna go down there and physically prostrate myself. You can do it in your chair. That's fine. Turn around and put your kid on your knees. So I'm gonna ask you to pray. Um, I'm gonna ask if you want to come up here and pray. I wanna remind you, if I may, that definition I gave you of humility, it involves an unadorned acknowledgement of one's own creaturely inadequacies and entrusting one's fortunes to God rather than to one's own abilities and resources. It's that simple, perhaps, this morning that you just bow your knee and bring your creatureliness to the Father in recognition, apart from humility. I open the door for disunity. The song we're gonna sing is called, Put It All on the Altar. What a, that's all we're doing. I'm, I'm just gonna invite you this morning, put it on the altar. This is the starting point. I don't know where that will lead. I will tell you this, as we sing it and it's sung over you and we'll sing it together, uh, there will be a rash of, of rash, there will be some rationale that hits your head. And I'm just gonna tell you this, if the rationale says anything about don't do that, that's not of the spirit. I don't know what, what that is other than I'm saying pray. I'm telling you, if you're kind of like, and, and, and bring your heart to the altar. Listen to the spirit. I will say this, and this is very personal to me. Y'all, I get so troubled, frustrated. I'm, I couldn't even find the right word for passages like this for me personally. And you say, well, why, Lloyd? Because I have a trail of broken relationships in my life, strained relationships. Things aren't right. Um, it pains me, I, I, you know, but my pride gets in the way. And some of those I go, I don't think they'll ever be reconciled. And, and here's the thing, I can beat myself up over that because that's my temperament. Some of you can kind of just go on and it doesn't bother you. But I'll say this, I don't think there's a person in the room that couldn't say what I just said. I don't think, I mean, we're fallen, broken people. We hurt each other, we mess up. And so, but then when I hear Paul say this, I just go, Ugh, I got these relationships that are just, I don't know. Yeah. So what do we do? Let's put it all on the altar. Let's come humbly before our God. Say, God, would you, by your spirit, let your humility be my own, whatever may come of these relationships. Let's stand together. Again, I'll invite you to remain standing to pray. You can kneel to pray. You can come up here to pray as we sing these words and as they're sung over us.